Welcome to Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today I'm joined by Academy Award-nominated screenwriter Iris Yamashita to talk about her debut crime fiction novel, City Under One Roof. Welcome to the podcast, Iris. Thank you, Nancy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, my pleasure. I live for this. I live for debut uh, crime fiction novelists. So uh, the blurbs you received for this novel from Anne Cleves and Mary Kubica and Naomi Hirahara, CJ Box and Lisa Gardner, among others, I think are spot on. Uh, they all refer to City Under One Roof as, as claustrophobic in all the right ways. And I would add that it's a locked room mystery on steroids. So while I was reading it, I often found myself taking deep breaths because of the inherent claustrophobia. I'm assuming that was part of the intention. Yes, when I found out, because uh, this um, the setting is inspired by a real place, and just reading about all the tunnels that actually exist in this town, just already that that seemed perfect for some claustrophobia and, you know, just the idea that, oh, I could have some action happening in these tunnels. It was just perfect. So the, the mystery starts auspiciously enough. And a teenage resident of the Dave Co., as the, which is the shortened version of the Davidson condominiums, which is an all-in-one structure for the 250 residents of Port uh, Metier, Alaska, finds body parts on the shore, and we go from there. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> it's always good to start with a dead body is how I, what I tell my students in writing. <laughs> or parts thereof. <laughs> parts, parts of a dead body. The story is told from the points of view of three women, or I should say two women and one teenage girl, Amy. Amy is our first narrator, and she may be young, but she's got Point Metier and Dave Coe nailed. And quote from your book, people had all sorts of reasons for moving to the city. Some said they fell in love with the scenery or liked the isolation or living in a close community. Amy knew the real reason people moved there was because there were they were running away from something or somebody. So in every, in other words, everyone at Dave Coe has secrets and have they have all run as far as they can. They are at the end of the line. Yes, uh, that was the fun part for me writing the story is um, discovering their secrets. I mean, I'm sure you've heard other writers say, you know, that the characters speak to you. So when I started writing, I didn't actually know what everyone's secret was. I just knew that they probably harbored some kind of secret and I had to discover that in the writing process and um the protagonist the de detective is included in that group of people who has uh you know some something to hide some past to to, to unravel well you have these three women and they're all very very different they all have secrets and we'll maybe touch on them individually in a in a minute if you if you would like but I ask this question of people who tell stories from different points of view. When you write, did you write us the under one roof in a linear fashion, just sort of toggling among the three writers? Or did you write all of Amy's part and all of Kara's part and all of Lonnie's part and then sort of 
quilt them together? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, when I start writing something, and this is whether I'm writing a novel or, or a screenplay, I um, my first draft is uh, mostly train of thought, and I just don't I don't try to edit myself, and I just go all the way through, and I call it my vomit draft. And I've heard other writers refer to their first draft as vomit drafts as well, and. Uh, I, I'm not precious because I know a lot of things are going to change and um, it, it's fun because it is it is sort of the discovery process. And that part is mostly linear. I do, I, I do an outline ahead of time and of course the outline changes and everything changes, but I, I do do it somewhat linear, linearly. Um, you know, I, I'll skip parts. Like if I get stuck somewhere, then um, I don't want to be in perpetual writer's block. So I skip it and then I go and I just keep, you know, just, just don't edit myself and I just keep going. But I do do a pass um, because the characters do have very distinct voices. And uh, I do tend to lose the voice unless I do all of the voice in one pass. So I do do a pass where I just look at character for character and just do um, just edit uh, that specific character. So I so that the voice is is more consistent. I call it my spaghetti draft as Your in, spaghetti draft. <laughs> I throw it on the wall and see what's next. <laughs> That's a good description. <laughs> well, you know, I've I've heard it a number of different ways. And so you touched on this, you know, the idea of a city and a building is a, you know, it's it's just like it, you couldn't think of a better uh, environment for a mystery, uh, especially of a locked room kind of mystery. And you touched on that you had read about this. So talk more about where the idea for this Dave Co. Uh, where it came from. Sure. Um, so it's inspired by um, a real city in Alaska called Whittier, Alaska. And I had watched a documentary and it was over 20 years ago, I think, when I saw this documentary, because when I saw it at that time, um, the tunnel, which is kind of the only way in via land, was is through this tunnel. Um when I saw the documentary, even cars couldn't go through the tunnel. It was um, only for the train. So that was the only way in or out was by train. So that, you know, was, first of all, that was so fascinating to me that, um, you know, anyone would choose to live in a place that's so isolated that, you know, you could only go in through a, tr a train through a tunnel. And I, um, I was just intrigued by the idea, again, that uh, everyone would choose to live in one building and what would that mean as a community? <laughs> you, know, you never, yeah, everything is inside the building. You know, your commute is the elevator. Um, all the services are in the building. Um, and the reason why it was uh, built that way is because it used to be, it was originally built as a military base. So there were, I believe there were two, there were two huge buildings. Um, but after an earthquake, one of them was uh, kind of unusable. So the 
the relic of that building is still there and it's part of the setting in this fictional version of Whittier, um, which I call Point Medier. Uh, it's supposed to be pronounced Point Medier, but of course, you know, <laughs> people butcher names, so I haven't called it Point Medier. I'm, I'm guilty of that, so. Oh, I mean, you know, <laughs> I think you pronounced it the correct way, actually. Uh, but um, but they the the inhabitants butcher the name. Um, and yeah, it, it just started. So it was in the back of my mind for over 20 years, the setting, I just didn't have a story. And then I, you know, finally thought, oh, you know, that would be a great setting for a mystery. And um, I didn't even know the terms locked room or anything like that. <laughs> so I just thought that that would be a great Setting. And then I started doing some research and I saw video driving through this tunnel that used to be only for trains. And then they opened it up to car traffic, but it's a narrow tunnel. So you can only go in one direction. So they go one way and then half an hour later, they switch directions and then the cars can go in the other way. But driving through that tunnel and it's, it's a two and a half mile tunnel just for just gave me this feeling that I was falling down a rabbit hole and I was going to end up in this strange wonderland that was full of weird and odd characters. And that was really the jumping off point, just thinking, okay, what kind of weird characters could live here, you know, and is it, it's kind of Alice in Wonderlandy, you know, in, in, in its feel. And that, that, that was really the jumping off point. I think, I think that uh, Dave Cole, and Point Metier are, are sort of a uh, through the looking glass. And, and the person that takes us through the looking glass is the second of your narrators. And that is, um, uh, let me grab it, uh, Cara. And Cara Kennedy, she arrives as the self, she's, she is a detective with the Anchorage Police Department. And she arrives and introduces herself as a self-described follow-up team to the two members of the Dave Co. Police Department. And she has secrets of her own. And, and that made me think that D Dave Co. really is a secret magnet. Yes. <laughs> yes, everyone um, has a secret, again, including the protagonist and that is the fun of mysteries I think is is uncovering what the secrets are and finding more about the characters that inhabit the story um yeah that's I think that's what makes mysteries fun and you know the claustrophobia so the you you mentioned this that uh, in the documentary you had seen this and the approach to Point uh, Meteor is a long tunnel with alternating traffic flow because there's only room for traffic in one direction. And so during the drive, we 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 go with Cara during the drive, and she wonders if she's uh, if she's going through a tunnel or driving into an abyss. And I, I that was so evocative of, uh, and I did think of Alice in Wonderland, and I did think of uh, just going down the rabbit hole, and and I knew that there would be something about Cara because of it. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you picked up on that. Um, because in my mind, 
yes, Kara's like the Alice falling down the rabbit hole. And um, it's cut might be a bit of a stretch, but the um the teenage girl, I I thought of her as like she's the rabbit that uh Kara follows for clues sometimes. And then I have the third character, Lonnie, who has a mental Mr. disability. Hatter. You got it. You're the first one to actually say that. That's wonderful. Yes, exactly. And I have a lot of these sort of Easter eggs, if you will, or references to Alice in Wonderland if you're a geek like I am and you're looking for something like that. I host a podcast talking to writers of crime fiction, so I think I qualify. I think I'm firmly in the geek nerd <laughs> camp of the crime <laughs> fiction community and, and a proud, proud of it, proud of it. That's wonderful. Um, I'm so glad you picked up on it. I thought, oh, no one's going to pick up on this because no one has mentioned anything like this yet. And so um, you are the first and I'm so happy. <laughs> I live for that. I really do. Um, I live for people saying things like that. And and everyone who listens to the podcast now will, will pick up on it as well. Yeah, I hope, so. um, I hope they can discover some things on their own. There's plenty to discover. So let's talk a little bit also about Lonnie. She's a formerly institutionalized sufferer of mental illness. And I'm not, you know, there's no judgment because she's obviously someone who's endured quite a bit. And she's the caretaker of Denny the Moose, whose mother was hunted and killed. And in that, uh, Lonnie has common ground with Denny because Lonnie's one of Lonnie's traumatic memories is of her mother being murdered. And in the Mad Hatter uh, vein, Lonnie likes to wear berets. She has them in many, many colors, which of course also made me think of Prince and Raspberry Beret, but that's a whole other tangent. Uh, so every village has a Lonnie. Every city has a Lonnie. Or if you, I live in Los Angeles, we have many Lonnies. And and what I appreciated about um, Port Metier was that the people there took care of her. Some of them took care of her better than others, but they protected her and took care of her. So can you talk about where Lonnie comes from and how she fits into the story, into, into the way you narrate the story? Well, I think um, one of the themes of the book is about community, because this is obviously an isolated community where um, people may love or hate each other, but they have to, they do have to kind of look out for each other because of their limited services and how isolated they are. So they do... Um, you know they they do have to to come together when needed uh so that i mean that was something um i had when i was doing my research on the real city one of the things that really um stood out for me was the idea that um there were there were people running away obviously in 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 the town and uh, one was running away from their abusive ex. And um, 
And again, this was the time when uh, the only way in was by train. So the train conductor would not let her ex board the train. So that kind of stood out for me as like, okay, there might be a lot of kind of seedy characters in this community, but um, uh, the feeling that um, they were a community was very interesting, that they were kind of looking out for each other in a way. Well, I thought it was, I thought it was um, really moving actually, how Lonnie was taken care of. Yes, the kids made fun of her, and but the sheriff uh, or the police chief or I'm, I'm yes, pausing on as the police chief of the two man force. Uh, mm -hmm. takes very, very good care of her. And, and, that, and he has his reasons, but he still does it. And I thought, I thought that was very moving. And, and she makes a good narrator, like uh, in a Shakespearean way, where you, know, you get sort of an unvarnished look at things through the fool's perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I love to explore different voices. And so... Um... It was fun for me also to try to come up with these sort of unique voices and how they would speak and what they would think and um, you know how, how what was in their heads as well. So it was um, it was it was hard actually. It was hard. It was kind of difficult to write her, but also it was it was satisfying or gratifying for me to I would be think it would be rewarding because she tells this her part of the story is told from such an interesting perspective and 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 illuminating in many many ways her observations of people are are really pretty good yeah I mean I, I think of her as like she she has a mental disability but but she's still very smart like yes she's very intuitive and that's what I I kind of wanted to put in her voice is that um, she it's it's like it's it's like an odd way of thinking but it but she's still smart. And of course, you've got teenagers there. Amy is one of them, and one of your narrators. And teenagers are uh, teenagers everywhere. So the teenagers uh, at Daveco have the same sorts of uh, feints and dodges that teenagers everywhere do. They they know things that their adult uh, counterpart, counterparts do not. And that plays into the story. And that, I would think that it might be almost as difficult to get into the head of a teenager. Oh yeah. As it would, <laughs> as it would to get into the head of someone who's suffering from uh, mental disabilities. Yeah, I I I also yes, I think it was difficult being an older person <laughs> to get into the mind of a teenager, but I did have so I I did come up with a way um of her her um narration being different from the other characters and it was more like uh a cadence, you know, like how kids speak very fast and they kind of run words together. So that was what I was thinking when um, I came up with her voice, but it did, I mean, I didn't have it on the first go when I was doing my vomit draft. 
<laughs> but it started to to come out kind of naturally like oh the, you know when you listen to young kids and how quickly they speak and their cadence and okay let me see if I can put that in there and I also thought it was fascinating that although she's a teenager she's a young person and she's lived most of her life uh, in Dave Cove she also has a secret and 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 a very very unexpected one and so that I thought that added to the complexity and the texture of her as a character. And, um, you know, that I'm not going to mention what the secret is because it's, it's integral to the story, I thought, but, but it's a great one. It's really a great one. Thank you. Yeah. That was one uh, that surprised me too, because I didn't know when I started writing what her secret was. And then I thought, Oh, what if, and, you know, and then it just, it just put, came together and it, yeah, it gave her more color and um, more of an arc and everything. So, and also without out. getting, without getting too political or pointed or giving away anything in the story, it also touches on, I think, an Asian American experience of, you know, who, who you are in the community. And, uh, and that, that to me was very interesting. Her secret is interesting. Good. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> um, so you're a screenwriter and you've pivoted to fiction. And so this is kind of a two-part question. You, you, I mean, you're not just a screenwriter. You, you wrote a screenplay for Clint Eastwood and you were nominated for an Academy Award, which is, you know, like not little. Um, and while both screenwriting and writing novels are storytelling, what's the difference for you? Two part question. First of all, why did you pivot to novels? You know, it's like, it's like I'm a successful screenwriter, but what I really want to do is spend nine months in front of my computer, you know, churning out 85,000 words. Um, and what's the difference between the two types of storytelling? Yeah, I um, I actually started uh, started writing as a hobby, and um, it had been novels first, but then I had a hard time finishing a novel because of <laughs> the time it takes, and you know, it's 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 a lot more um, time that you need to invest. Whereas a screenplay, um. For a feature film is about 100 pages with a lot of white space so it was much easier to actually finish so I kind of jumped into the screenwriting world and um yeah that's where and and I had great success on my first go and it was like a miracle uh you know getting a job with Clint Eastwood and then getting nominated it, it was it was unbelievable um but I, you know, the more I was in the industry, I, the more I was feeling unsatisfied because um, whatever you hit with first, you know, obviously that's what's, what you're going to be known for. So I became known as being the Asian story writer and more specifically historical Asian writer. <laughs> which it was very uncommercial at the time. Um, I had looked up statistics uh, from the Writers Guild about uh, diversity and um, 
a 2010 report, which was after my movie came out, was that uh, 83% of working screenwriters were male and 95% of screenwriters were white. So it was very, very uh, difficult. Um, and Asian stories were considered uncommercial. Uh, I think it, it's changed a lot recently, but um, while I was making uh, a good living, I was getting paid. Um, there were directors and producers who really, you know, believed in telling diverse stories, and definitely more recently, um, a lot of a lot of people, you know, were standing behind these telling these kinds of stories. But when it came to buyers, like this the studios and the streamers, that's where it would hit a wall. And I would couldn't see any of my work being produced. <laughs> so I thought, you know, let me give um, writing novels a chance again. And it is it, it felt so liberating and free because um, you could write whatever you wanted. Uh, a lot of times with screenwriting, the jobs that you get, they're called assignments because there's somebody else's idea. It's usually, you know, like a book adaptation or it could be something from uh, real life, like a news article or something, or it could be a remake of something. It's very rare that you get to write um, your own original material unless you're, you know, a huge, big blockbuster a guy like James Cameron, <laughs> you know, there's not, there's not a lot of opportunity to write original material. So um, I thought uh, writing books felt very liberating, not only in subject matter, but um, you also, it's, it's much easier to get to the final product. Um, like with screenwriting, again, you know, you have to pass so many levels and you have to have hundreds of people involved and you have to have millions of dollars uh, to actually materialize your work. So um, it's, even though it was easier to write a screenplay, it, it felt like it was so much harder to see an end product. And then with writing a book, it feels a lot harder to actually write the book, but you know, there's less people involved and, um, you know, less money needed to get to the final product. I think, you know, it doesn't cost like a hundred million dollars to get a book published. I don't think so. <laughs> so it depends who you talk to. <laughs> so in that sense, um, yeah. So I think the, the writing of the book is harder, but the end product seems more reachable. And that's the biggest difference, I think. But um, and then film, of course, it's it's more um, it's a visual medium, which but interestingly, as a screenwriter, you are not the one writing all the visuals like when I you know, when I describe a character, it's going to be minimal, like age or something. I'm not going to say she has a mole on her left cheek or, you know, because you don't know who's going to get cast. So you don't actually go into that detail. And um, and and they don't like writers to direct because that's the director's job. So you're not going to give, you know, like she moved here and then she went there. But whereas books, you're everything, you know, you're the you're the director and you're the costume, you know, the, the person in charge of costume. You're you're everything. So you you do have to describe 
all of it, <laughs> which is interesting because I finished my first um, my first draft on my first novel. I never described the protagonist and I didn't realize it <laughs> until I think they were they were making the cover. And then they were thinking about, I mean, the protagonist didn't end up on the cover, but they, but the artist was thinking possibly of putting the protagonist on the cover and asked, what does she look like? And then I oh, God, never, I never once described her. <laughs> so I had to go back and put in a description. It's, I guess it's part of the learning curve. You're also, um, as the writer, you're also the cinematographer. And so you, you do set up some really um, really visual scenes, uh, especially actually when they go outside of Daveco, when they because they do they do venture out into the snowy wilds, and I thought uh, those scenes were particularly um, descriptive. And you really, I really felt cold. I really <laughs> did. Oh, good. Um. It, it was, I'm originally from a cold place and it sort of, it was giving me flashbacks. Oh, that's, that's great. I, that makes me feel good because I've actually never lived in a cold place. I've only been living in islands. Like I grew up in Hawaii and uh, obviously. We should mention California. that you, <laughs> you, were, you were born in, in Missouri in the Show Me State and you've lived in Hawaii and Japan and uh, I, I yes. think, and Guam is, is <laughs> one of them. So I, I think that that's really interesting. And I think that brings a perspective. And I think it brings a perspective that's reflected in your book uh, because there's there are people from everywhere at Dave Co. Yes. Um, so I did go to um, the city that this book is inspired by. Um, and it actually is really diverse. And so I actually, I don't think originally in my book that they were that diverse. I mean, there were diverse characters, but not as um, diverse as I later changed it to be after visiting the the actual, the place, because then I saw, wow, you know, there's people from Samoa and there's people from, you know, they're, they're Asian inhabitants there are you know, they're, they're from all over they're from the philippines um i think there was actually a family from guam where i had lived for a little bit so it was very surprising to see to see that well it, it dave co really is sort of the restaurant at the end of the universe <laughs> That's a good way you know, to everybody it. everybody ends up there um City Under One Roof has a surprising ending, which of course we are not going to talk about um, for obvious reasons, but it does leave the door open. And so I have to ask if you are working on a follow-up book that will feature one or more of the same characters. Yes, you, you hit it on the head. Uh, I am working on book two right now and you will you will see some of the characters that appeared in book one um and uh some new characters as well <laughs> well this has been really great iris thank you so much for talking to us about your debut city under one roof and i really i am it's 
wonderful to get a book published uh, in this day and age. So congratulations. It's, uh, it's not easy to do. And you did it. And it's really compelling and, and intriguing and engaging read. So congratulations. Oh, thank you so much, Nancy. It was a pleasure to be here. And um, thank you so much for having me here. And it was a pleasure talking to you. Mm -hmm.